It's your girl Rashida, aka Randomly Rashida, and you're listening to The Real and Random Podcast. On today's episode, I'm talking with Tammy Wolford, a breast cancer survivor or thriver, as she calls herself. On part one of her two-part story, we dive into how life changed for her upon getting diagnosed with cancer. She describes in detail how fast life changes, not only for you, the diagnosed, but the people around you. In the midst of all that chaos and crisis, her husband of some 20 years tapped out and decided he wanted out of the marriage. After being man-shamed, he pleaded for her to take him back. Did she take him back? You'll have to tune in to hear the answer to that question and so much more on part one of My Killer Boobs, which starts right now. That's so random. Her podcast is Your Killer Life, and she will explain why she titled it Your Killer Life. Go ahead, Tammy. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. Yeah, it is a little bit of everything. Oh, my goodness. And including a little bit of death. (laughs) So, (laughs) The podcast is all things breast cancer. I talk about everything from mental health to sex to, oh, my gosh, just the diagnosis, the emotions of going through it all, some of the truly tactical things that you're trying to decide on, what the process is like. For example, I don't like the word mastectomy because it it really disconnects people from the reality of the fact that it's a breast amputation. My story really is that at the age of 43, I was at the top of my game, had the house on the water, had the second house, had the great job, had just finished my master's in business. I was running for state representative. And so all of these things going on. And then a few months later, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. When I let my husband, someone I had been with for 20 years, know that I was pretty sure it was cancer and had scheduled my appointment and had a mammogram, he let me know within about a week that he wanted a divorce. And I always say cancer is like this marathon. It is not a sprint. And not everybody who starts the race with you is going to make it to the end. And he didn't even make it to the starting line. And so there were a lot of different things going on. Well, hang on one second. So let's, let's pause for a minute. So you said you told him about the diagnosis and he filed for divorce or he wanted a divorce. Was there any contention in the relationship prior to that? And that just took him over the edge or he was just like, that's not something I can handle. I'm out. <laughs> that is a more than fair question. And honestly, if the relationship was super healthy, then that would not have likely happened. Right. Right. So we had been working in different cities and living apart. And it's one of those things. I'm very careful not to make him out to be the super bad guy. It wasn't working. And this was the thing that kind of put us over the edge. Now he didn't show up to my mammogram appointment, but I had an ultrasound the same day and he was sort of man shamed into it by somebody he worked with. who was like, what do you mean? She's getting a mammogram right now and thinks she has cancer and you're here. (laughs) Like what is wrong with you? And so he did show up, but I really believe, Rashida, that the universe wastes nothing. And he got there in time for the ultrasound at the ultrasound. Like I had no idea I would find out that day that I had cancer. At the ultrasound, the radiologist said to me, you have cancer and a lot of it. And it was really fast. Like I went to the gynecologist. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that I have a thing going on. He's like, I don't know. I don't feel anything. Three days later, you have cancer and a lot of it. And so my soon to be ex asked me at that time, I mean, he said, you've got to take me back. And I looked at him and said, no, because I knew I didn't have enough 
to do it for both of us, right? Like I knew I needed to be my primary focus and that was not something I needed piled on in addition to everything else. So he said, I want a divorce. Okay, take me back. Right. He felt guilty about saying that and knowing that it's real, you have cancer. I think so. I mean, I don't know, right? Because I'm not him. So I don't really know what was going through his mind at the time. It was just a very weird space, but I just knew what I needed to do and what was right for me. You know, if we had been healthy and functional in our relationship the whole time, none of this would have happened in the first place. Or if it had, we would have had better tools for dealing with it. But if after 20 years, I'm literally afraid that I have cancer and cancer at that point in time in my head, meaning death, and you're so petty that you can't be there at the mammogram when you put me through all these gyrations and then you do show up and you say, well, you've just got to take me back. And no, I don't. (laughs) I don't need that drama in my life right now. Trust me, I have enough of my own. I tell people sometimes, there's a set of people who say you're in it to win it till death do us part. Everyone goes in with that notion, right? But then things happen along the way. Right. But I've always been the girl who says, if it's not right, why keep ticking away numbers on the clock? Just to say, oh my God, we've been married for 30, 40, 50 years when 39 and a half of them, you were in one room and I'm in another room. (laughs) Right. And you know, that's one of the gifts with cancer in some ways, not that I was aware of it at that time, right? Because at that time I was pretty numb. (laughs) But one of the gifts towards the end of it, as I started to regain my health is life is meant to be joyful. And how many years did I spend and did he spend not experiencing joy because we were so far down that path and had accepted that faith. We had tried marriage counseling, I think one other time. So clearly things were not blissful. But I will also say just because you go to marriage counseling doesn't mean that things aren't blissful or that you don't have a good relationship. The willingness together to work on it, I think is, is critical, right? right? And we went to counseling and figured out that it wasn't really something one of us wanted to work on it. And one of us was like, no, I didn't like the answers I got. And so we didn't go back. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So lots of learning there. Cause you got married, I guess, when you were in your twenties. So there's something to be said about that too, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what I would say to that is that the person that we are in our 20s is not the person we are in our 30s. It's not the person we are in our 40s. We are always growing emotionally, intellectually, in wisdom through our experience. And so we're not static and we're not meant to be. The question is, can you grow together and accept the changes that are coming no matter what? Because A, the person that you met and you have that honeymoon period with, you find out that, I don't know, they don't put their dishes in the dishwasher or whatever little thing, right? Like the perfection doesn't last. And so how do you transition and have grace with one another as you go through that? And are you still compatible? And how do you forgive yourself? Because I had this exchange with someone I don't even know her on Facebook and she was saying (laughs) that marriage is forever because the conversation was about renewable marriages my current husband we've talked about that before or I brought it up and said hey what do you think about this and he's like oh my god that sounds like the worst thing ever and I'm like I kind of can get with it now that I'm older now 20 years ago I'd have been like oh heck no like I would have been offended to the wazoo right and so she was like well if you just choose right and you know stay with it then you'll have better success and that's how you should go into it. And I said, well, what if you do all the things you know for your age at 23, 37, whatever age you are, you've done everything, you've crossed the T's, dotted the I's, and it still doesn't work out because like you just said, 
people grow and we're supposed to, mm -hmm. we're supposed to evolve. And sometimes we don't evolve at the same pace or rate or go down the same path and you have to make a decision. And I think as women in particular, we have to forgive ourselves because we always ask ourselves, what did we do wrong? What could I have done better? As if though right. it wasn't a team. We each have equal fault in this situation. Someone didn't give enough, someone took too much, you know what I mean? And so we have to be forgiving and say, well, not look at ourselves and go, gosh, I just picked wrong people versus for what we know today, we just kind of grew apart. And I think that's a real thing and it can happen, but we have to be okay with that. And then now that we know, now that we're 23 years down the road, we have a different set of criteria. And I'm sure when you got remarried, cause you're remarried now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You went in with a different set of eyes, a different set of criteria, different everything. So I think that's important to note for women cause we tend to beat ourselves down too much, but go ahead. <laughs> I had to just say that. <laughs> I agree with that. We do. We tend to own it all. It's a societal norm. It's a conditioning from birth, in my opinion. In our society, we own everything, right? Right. I will say, though, I didn't have the issue of forgiving myself for this. And I think part of it is because it was really noisy, right? I had cancer, which was a priority and survival, right? So I'm literally focused on what decision do I need to make today to extend my life. What decision do I need to make this week and then this month and then this quarter? And then finally, it's down to what decision do I need to make this year to maintain my health? But in the beginning, it was literally what decisions do I need to make to increase my chances of survival, actual living? It was really kind of easy for me that this didn't fit, that the marriage was not working and it would have actually caused me stress and it would have been a detraction from what I needed to focus on. Now, if you could give somebody advice who's going through this right now, what would you tell the him in this situation? If his wife was diagnosed, what would you say to him? Honestly, I would say that one of the worst things you could do is try and stay out of this weird sense of obligation. And this is probably going to sound counterintuitive to a lot of people. A lot of people will probably say, what are you saying? Are you saying that he should abandon this person? What I'm saying is that if you cannot be a healthy part of this person's process and recovery, then you need to go and support them in the way that you can financially or through insurance or whatever. But if it is emotionally not healthy, do not add that stress to the person. And that is going to look different for everybody. And there are a lot of couples that go through this. And there are a lot of husbands that do not make it through the cancer process. That's just point blank. I see it all the time. And a lot of times it's because like if you look at me right now, you look at a photo right now, you would never know that I was a stage 3B cancer survivor that had metastasis to the dermis and to my lymph nodes. You wouldn't know that. And there are so many people just like me that you walk past in the street that you would never know that that is their reality. Well, it definitely puts a new spin on till death do us part sickness and health, right? I don't think people really take that stuff seriously. It's just something you say maybe. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, well, there are so many societal obligations around that. And I guess that I look at it so differently now because my question is, is this healthy? Is it healthy and what are you modeling? Right? right. And especially if you have children, I don't have children, but when I'm talking with girlfriends that have been in dysfunctional, whatever, like, that's always my question. Like, what are you teaching children that is normal for them to seek when they are adults? And would you want them to have the relationship that you have? 
Now you can ask that about your inner child and say, is this something that I would have wanted for myself? And where is this coming from? Am I settling? And if I'm settling, why is it okay for me to settle? If I'm not able to advocate for what my needs are emotionally, physically, right? Then what is the purpose of this relationship that I'm in? And I think that so many of us carry baggage, right? I mean, we just do. We have our baggage. Yeah, I always joke. Like, I don't know who these Hallmark people are that their family was so great that their cards look like that because honestly, the money is in dysfunctional holiday cards because that is the reality of most people. That's what it really looks like. <laughs> right. You may be onto something with that. <laughs> right? Real Mark, not Hallmark, but real Mark. <laughs> there you go. Oh my gosh, we just came up with your product line for real. <laughs> You heard it here, folks, folks. <laughs> Girl, real and random would be perfect for cards. Are you kidding me? Oh, my goodness. So, but anyway, that whole death do us part. It's a lovely platitude. And cancer is a unique thing. Stress is inflammatory. Cancer and stress are not good partners. And so if staying together means that you are still living in stress, then that is not helpful to a cancer patient. I agree. My grandmother died from breast cancer, and I had another family member who had it as well, and she survived. I think she had one of her breasts removed, so it is real for sure. And, and I think you said some really key points about modeling, and that was one of the reasons why I got a divorce the first time is because it hit me one day. I have three sons, and I was like, and I'm sure I probably would have felt the same way with daughters, and people have heard me say this time and time again, but I was like, at some point, I realized I don't want them to see this. I don't want them to right. think this is what a guy-girl relationship should look like. Like we're not doing a good job and I don't want to create another set of monsters based on what we've done to them. So I'd rather right. just suck it up now and we'll get therapy around the feelings and the hurt and you know all that good stuff. But I'll be happier and they can thank me later for them being better people at the end of the day. And so I think we have to free ourselves up from what we want and what is. Because the reality is, exactly. especially when you have kids, that you'll create this times however many kids you have. <laughs> and nobody that wants is that. True. That is so true. Shame and guilt are pretty useless emotions. And shame in particular, because shame is usually created by an outside expectation. And so if you're having shame around your divorce, like asking yourself, okay, am I having shame because the expectation is that this was until death do us part and it's supposed to be forever and I'm failing based on a societal expectation or a church expectation or words that I said however many years or days ago, or am I failing because I'm not living my life to its maximum. And if I'm not living my life to, to its maximum, if I am not able to seek joy to its maximum, if I am not able to find these things within myself, how on earth can I give these things outward? And so where is the shame coming from? Should we have more shame because we are failing to be the best that we can possibly be? Or should we have shame based on outside influences? You and I had talked a second about Will and Jada and the Red Table Talk that they had. And it's interesting because there's a lot of 
people that wanting to throw shame at both of them. There's the, I would say, sort of toxic masculinity of he should be ashamed for letting her walk all over him and his emotions and et cetera, et cetera. And she's dirty and awful and there should be a lot of shame on her. Right. And the reality of this is I watched their Red Table Talk and I thought they, speaking of modeling, did a really good job of modeling how relationships are complicated, mm -hmm. of saying where they were. And ultimately, whether or not they have guilt or shame is going to come down to them individually and their relationship dynamic and the outside opinion. And I just think to myself, how strong do you have to be really to really air your dirty life? I mean, oh, yeah, and, for sure. I always say <laughs> I'd rather be rich than famous because there's like your laundry is all over everything. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> People are so in your business. But they did that and they had a really great talk. And you think about like their kids are watching this and their kids are watching them say, we screwed up. We're imperfect. We are choosing to work on things. We could have done better things. You know, Jada herself saying, I have codependency issues and I have struggled with addiction issues. And these are, and him saying, I love you unconditionally. Right. Right. And who knows behind closed doors what it's really like. But the point being that those are two people stepping into owning themselves and their emotions and their situation. And it doesn't seem, and again, who knows behind closed doors because mean things are being said, but the overall shame influence isn't coming externally. Wow. And it's really a bold thing to have that conversation and put yourself out there like that. Yeah. And I always tell people that relationships are unique to the individual. So we want to give credit to the people who've been married for like 99 years. You go, oh my God, that's so amazing. But you don't really know the details and nor should we know the right. details. But what we do know is whatever they got going on, they're making it work for whatever reason. And that's what we need to right. celebrate. And I don't believe you need to be a quitter. For sure I don't. But everybody knows what their breaking points are. Everybody knows what they can withstand and what they can't. And they have to make those decisions. And so I'm always remiss when I hear people say, oh my God, they have like a great relationship or they look like they're just a perfect couple. There's no such thing. Like every couple is the perfect couple because it's unique to who they are and what they got going on. If you want to be a swinger, do it. If you want to be in entanglements, <laughs> do it. If that's what works <laughs> for your situation, do you. And nobody should feel bad. Like you say, man shamed or woman shamed or wife shamed because your husband's doing this or you're doing that. Like leave people alone. Let people live. There's enough going on in the world to be mad about oh. than worrying about who's sleeping with who. <laughs> there are actual injustices going on in the world, actual injustices. And I don't really need to know what people are doing in their bedroom. Exactly. <laughs> like that has never been a focus of mine. I don't understand it. Like I literally don't sit on a bus and, and look at people and think, gosh, I wonder what the heck they're doing. You know, <laughs> like who are they knocking boots with? <laughs> Speaking of bedroom, when we were talking prior, you mentioned having a double mastectomy and the stigma around women and breast and, how all that looks like and sensuality and stuff. Can you tell us about that experience of having had a double mastectomy and what did that do for you as a woman and all around that? Yeah. So things on the cancer train move very fast. And so I should also say that like I was diagnosed, I want to say the radiologist told me on February 11th and my biopsies were February 13 and my breasts were gone on March 17th. But wow. like it moves really fast. No yeah. Doubt. And when you have a mastectomy, 
and reconstruction, I'm just going to say, you do not get porn boobs. All right. Everybody thinks that it's like a boob job and whatever. No, it is a really long process to get you. And my plastic surgeon did a really wonderful job in setting expectations because what she said is my goal is to get you looking as normal as possible with your clothes on. Mm. Meaning that you have so much damage, you may never get back to anything like what you looked like before. So for me, since the cancer had gotten to my nipple, I didn't have a nipple sparing mastectomy. I had a skin sparing mastectomy so that there was space for implants. And then with the type of cancer that I have, which is infiltrating lobular carcinoma, it tends to be bilateral. And it also doesn't often show on mammogram. And a really good example of this is that, and I had over six centimeters of tumor tissue, malignant tissue in my breast that was non-palpable. And the only reason it showed up on mammogram is because there was so much of it. Mammogram and MRI showed it to be a little less than half of what it actually turned out to be. So it's an interesting cancer in that regard. So I had a bilateral mastectomy. And when you come out of a bilateral mastectomy and they unwrap that dressing for the first time, (laughs) your skin is put together with what look like construction staples. They literally use surgical staples. You have no feeling. You have a, a chest cavity that you can see because the breast itself, that breast tissue rests in this little bit of a divot. Some people have a a deeper divot than other people. And so I'm unwrapped and I have this wadded up tissue. And in one of my blog posts, I actually, or one of my podcasts, the show notes, I have a photo of what I looked like post mastectomy. And it feels very Frankenstein. So you go from this lovely lady lump, right? Where you have femininity and you have curve and you have sensuality associated with it in American culture. The last thing we talk about breast being for is feeding babies, right? We'd use them to sell hamburgers and cars. We, <laughs> we have push-up bras. We have all of these expectations of, of American beauty and how the chest is so much a part of that. Immediately, you're robbed of that. And you're robbed of that for however long right? And not everybody, I will say this, and not everybody goes through the process of reconstruction because that takes years sometimes and is incredibly painful. So it does feel like your femininity is annihilated. And the other really frustrating part about it is that there's no escape from it. Every shirt I put on did not fit right. Every time you get out of the shower, you are aware of the battle that you're currently in and the trauma that you're going through. Now, did that affect your self-esteem as far as, because now you're divorced and you're going through this, I guess you're on the recovery side now. I'm sure you want to have someone you can talk to. Do you just don't even go there with yourself on that? You know, I probably wouldn't have if I hadn't already been friends with Griff. And I think that that's where it's a little bit different. And he has lost two family members to cancer. And so it was this really interesting thing because he stepped in and he's like, for whatever reason, I swear to God, he was like, I'm going to be her person. And I'm over here. Like, I don't want a person. (laughs) (laughs) I've done that before. I'm good. (laughs) Well, not just that, 
for starters, he's 13 years younger than I am. Okay. I just sort of dismissed it as I'm not a project to be fixed. I'm not, but this is me projecting, right? Like I'm not a project to be fixed. I'm not whatever. (laughs) And him wanting to initially not be intimate in the sexual way. So when I say intimate, be that intimate friend, someone I could have those conversations with. And it was valuable to me because having a guy's perspective at that point in time was a good thing for me. Because they do see it totally different. And he and I have had podcast episodes on that where it is just entirely, you know, different perspective. I don't know if it, they're just typically more mechanical about it. So they're just, <laughs> well, you know, this is, this is what happens. But for me, I was sort of tied in this emotional thing. And the other thing is, I didn't know if I was going to live or not. So why the hell would I open myself up to love or worse, allow someone to love me if I didn't know I was going to be able to be here for the long haul? Like that just sounded to me, it just seemed like the the cruelest thing you could do is start a new relationship from someone and then literally tap out in such a way, in such a way that it is that permanent. There was a lot of confusion around that as well, but I will say he he is persistent. (laughs) Well, that's good because I would always question that. I know my grandmother, she was married when she went through it and my aunt was married as well and the guy stepped up to the plate for sure in both of those situations. And so I would only hope that that gives you some, some peace that and comfort, I guess, because I don't know that I want to go through that by myself, but I can see it from both angles because I'm an independent chick already. And so I can see myself going, uh, I don't want to be bothered. This is my thing, not your thing. Don't make it your thing. But then the other side of me is like, gosh, you just want to cry maybe one day or just be and know that you can fall in a safe place. So kudos to Griff. (laughs) right right definitely because you know in the beginning when he and I were friends and my ex and I we were sort of like it's so noisy we don't know what's going on right (laughs) and so he offered to drive me to my mastectomy appointment and my mother and my sister were there and he was at the house and again I don't want to make him sound like he's the jerk obviously this is traumatic for him as well, hearing that I have cancer and going through all of this. So keeping that in mind, but he, for whatever reason, got frustrated with something. And I'm sure, you know, I was not at my best. I'm freaking out in the morning. I'm having my first major surgery ever. And they're removing, they're amputating my breast. And he just left and didn't communicate. And my mom looked at me and she said, well, is he coming back? And I just shrugged and said, no idea. And she said, well, what if he doesn't come back? And I said, well, if he doesn't come back, we drive to the hospital in the morning and you can plug the address into the car to get home that night. Or I can always have one of my friends get you to the house. Wow. And so I was already like that independent. And my mom cried. I didn't, you know, and that also says a lot about the relationship that I was in, right? Like he just ghosted the night before my mastectomies, leaving my mom and my sister sort of stunned, like, what what do we do now? (laughs) And that's part of that instinctual knowing too, of why I didn't take him back because who knew? And so, yeah, maybe it would have been nice to know that because trust me, there were times like with my first reconstruction, I was like, I guess I could take an Uber. I don't know. Right. Like I'm trying to to figure it out because my mom and my sister don't live near me. They're in a different state. Well, you know, I'll just figure it out. 
That's right, Tammy. Like we do as women, we figure it out. I just want to thank Tammy for her bravery and candor in sharing such a personal and intimate detail of her story and her journey. Be sure to come back tomorrow as the story continues with part two of My Killer Boobs. As I always say, your best and brightest days are ahead. This is Rashida, aka Randomly Rashida, and this has been The Real and Random Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, like, follow, share, and leave reviews and comments because we as podcasters, we like that sort of stuff. And I will catch you on the flip side. That's so random.